The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to, born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with, your, with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, And because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, and then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. If you were in high school or college in the late 90s, I'm sure you remember a movie, a series of movies, a big subgenre of movies that got real popular. Titles like, I Know What You Did Last Summer, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, Scream 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, maybe even 6 at, that, at this point, I'm not sure. For those of you who aren't familiar with these movies, I'd like to applaud you for your discernment and for your refined taste in film. Basically, the plot of these kinds of movies went like this. A small group of teenagers or college-age kids went off to blow off some steam on spring break or summer break. At some point in their days of partying and celebration, something goes terribly wrong. The group of spring breakers or summer breakers ends up the target of a deranged killer with a grudge to settle. The rest of the plot always centers around figuring out which member of the group has a deep, dark past and which member of the group is the target of that, uh, of that attack to have that grudge settled on, on the uh, part of the attacker? Or is the villain one of the group? Another s- trademark of, of those movies is the plot twist. All these movies centered on a common theme, 
your past will come back to haunt you someday. Now, those movies sensationalized fear to the point of absurdity, of course, for, for effect, but that deep-seated fear of our past is what resonates with people, I think. We don't all feel like we deserve to be chased around by a knife-wielding maniac, but what happens is those movies, I think, is a very real portrayal of the, the things that we regret about our past and the disturbing power that it has over us. In moments of guilt or regret, we feel like we might just deserve what we have coming to us because of our past moral failings. We might even feel like God would be the one waiting in the wings, ready to come down on us and make us pay for what we've done. We not only do that with our own past, but we do that with the past of others. It's a sort of power and control to be able to wave someone's shortcomings in their face on a, reg on, on a regular basis. We can dig it up and make them pay for it over and over again. Our journey with Abraham showed us last week that God is gracious to us even when we have the same struggles over and over again. Our story this week begins with a great moment in redemptive history. Isaac is born, yet the past comes back to haunt Sarah and Abraham, and it turns this moment of celebration completely upside down. This morning we're going to look at first at how Sarah and her guilt and resentment compounds the brokenness of the situation. Next, we're going to look at how Abraham laments the brokenness, but trusts God anyway. And finally, we'll discover that God's grace is big enough, not only to forgive us of our past, but also to use it for his glory. So let's begin by looking at how Sarah compounds the brokenness in this situation by taking action, the action that she did against Ishmael and Hagar. Sarah was still haunted by the sins of her past and their consequences. It's very clear. Abraham and Sarah are in the midst of celebrating the faithfulness of God. They have a son, the promised son. The promises that God had made to Abraham sealed in the covenant ceremony are now coming to fruition. God was faithful to them. When Sarah looked at the situation the previous year, all she saw was reason to be cynical and doubtful. But God worked in Sarah's seemingly impossible circumstances to accomplish his purposes. Sarah is very clearly in the midst of what many of us would call a mountaintop experience. She had witnessed God's miraculous work firsthand, and she had been he had been faithful to her even when she had been faithless. Her reaction to Isaac's birth tells us everything we need to know about just how close she felt to God at that moment. God has made laughter for me. It's completely natural for us to feel the same way when um, God has been good to us, those feelings of joy and devotion. When we feel like he's taken care of us and met the desires of our hearts. We want to tell the rest of the world about what God has done for us. And the same thing is true of Sarah here. She invites everyone else into her joy when she says, everyone who hears will laugh with me, will laugh over me. She's going to make sure that everyone else has the opportunity to rejoice with her when they hear of God's faithfulness to her. And after all the laughter and testimony of God's goodness and celebration of his faithfulness with others, we get a very sobering reminder of what is lurking in the recesses of Sarah's heart. We see that the joys in our walk with God are true and good and uplifting, but the joys are often clouded with guilt and heartache and regret due to the consequences of our failures. 
Whether it's ancient history or recent past, sin leaves us with baggage. We can cope with that either in continued repentance and faith, or we can cope with that in ways that only makes matters worse for ourselves and for those around us. In Sarah's case, we see a lack of uh, I'll see how a lack of trust in God's care leads her to compound this, the consequences of the sins of her past. Exactly at the height of Sarah's celebration, her attention is drawn away. She looks over at Ishmael and what he's doing. And with the dramatic shift from celebration to, Sarah, to Sarah's view of Ishmael, we can almost feel that knot twist in her stomach. One look at Ishmael causes everything in Sarah's life at that moment to come to a screeching halt. And we can only imagine what sorts of thoughts might have been going through her mind at that moment. Waves of guilt, having been the one to sanction the relationship between Abraham and Hagar. Anger with Abraham. Jealousy over the relationship between Abraham and Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael's very presence in the house must have been a continual reminder to Sarah of her past failings. Her anxieties must have been even more amplified, understandably, with the birth of Isaac. She probably felt like Isaac's inheritance was now in jeopardy because of the very presence of Ishmael in the home. So all those emotions, the regret, the guilt, the anger, the fear, the anxieties, they all come rushing in from the past and Sarah snaps. She lets the circumstances surrounding her past failings rob her of her joy in God's faithfulness. No doubt she probably felt convicted about the very words that were about to come out of her mouth, simply because of the role that she played in bringing Hagar and Abraham together in the first place. But she orders Abraham to cast Hagar and Ishmael out. Instead of remaining confident in God's promises to bless her and her family, she lashes out, which only accentuates the difficulty of the situation. She attempts to take justice into her own hands. The word translated cast out here is the same word used for when Adam was ejected from the garden and when Cain was banished for murdering Abel. So it's not just cast them out, it's drive them out with a sense of harshness and judgment. And, so, and notice also in, in your Bibles at verse 10 that Sarah has a very demeaning attitude towards Hagar and Ishmael. She won't even refer to them by their proper names, it's just the slave woman and her son. Sarah is harsh and demeaning. But she's also smart enough to try and put a theological spin on the way she's treating Hagar and Ishmael. Her justification is that Ishmael is not supposed to be the heir that got, or have any part in the promises or the inheritance that God had provided. So why is it easy for us to allow guilt over the past, sin, sins of our past or the sins of others to rule over us? What happens to us that makes us lose all sense of joy in the, in the current blessings that God has given us? What is it about us that lets old anxieties continue to creep in? When we see that Sarah completely loses her sense of God's peace in her life, peace in the promises that God has given, especially in spite of the inescapable evidence that God has been faithful to them in that moment, we need to ask ourselves a very important question. How do we respond to the consequences of our own sin or the sin of others? Guilt and regret 
are clearly destructive forces when they rule our hearts. When we hold on to our own guilt or the guilt of someone else, it's all too easy to try to take judgment into our own hands as well. We begin to feel justified in casting, out our, casting people out of our lives, either physically or emotionally, or treating them in a demeaning way to give, us, give ourselves a sense of superiority. We allow our fears and regrets to become obstacles to the belief that God can overcome even the greatest evil and make it work toward the accomplishment of his good purposes in our lives. So does this mean that Sarah should have just allowed Hagar and Ishmael to, be, to remain in the house and take a portion of Isaac's inheritance? Does this mean that we should be more willing to give a free pass to ourselves and to others when we fall short of God's call on our lives? That's not what I'm saying at all. But what we can take from Sarah's reaction here is that our attempts at carrying out God's justice hardly ever accomplish his purposes. When we try to remedy our own guilt or the guilt of someone else, we usually just end up compounding the injustice. We end up dealing harshly with ourselves or with those who may have sinned against us. We lose our capacity to enjoy God's work in our lives because we try to take over his role in judgment. Sarah had God's promises for her, and so do we. We can trust his work that it will be sufficient and that it will remedy the consequences of our failures. So Abraham, on the other hand, is caught in the middle of the drama, but he trusts God through it all. What a relief it must have been to Abraham for, to be able to celebrate the birth of Isaac at this moment. Imagine what it must have felt like for Abraham as well. He had been waiting 25 years for this moment. Since that very first promise back in Genesis 15, God had been working in Abraham's life in some very significant ways, some very challenging ways as well. And I'm sure that in the back of Abraham's mind, he's probably just being like waiting for this promised son to come along to kind of carry him through the difficult times. And after everything that Abraham has been through with God, we have to think he's probably somewhat exhausted as well. Imagine what it was like to, be, to go through the experiences of being those covenant ratification ceremonies that we talked about. It must have been completely exhausting for Abraham to have that initial relationship set up and then to experience all the weight of those ceremonies. He spent time pleading with God on behalf of Sodom. He had to rescue Lot from his own mess. And he had the reoccurrence of old struggles with Abimelech. And the one thing that probably kept him going was, I'm going to have a son someday. And yet Abraham is also a man who's caught in the middle of the wreckage that came as a result of taking Hagar as a concubine and fathering a son with her. Abraham now sees Sarah crushed under the weight of her own guilt, fears, and anxieties. In some ways, he bears some of the responsibility for Sarah's harsh treatment of Hagar and Ishmael. He could have resisted Sarah's recommendation in the first place to take Hagar. He could have remained steadfast in God's promises and encouraged Sarah to do the same. Instead, he went along with Sarah's um, scheme to take God's plan into their own hands. So, on the one side, Abraham watches Sarah come to a breaking point over the regret of her past decisions. On the other side, 
Abraham envisions the potential disaster waiting for his son. Especially if he has to drive them out in a harsh way and provide nothing for them, the way Sarah seems to be requesting him to do. It's very clear that Abraham's heart is broken over casting Hagar and Ishmael out. In spite of the circumstances that brought Ishmael into his life, Abraham had obviously developed a very special bond with this boy. At this point in the story, Ishmael is approaching adolescent age, and uh, facing the prospect of never seeing him again is, uh, is weighing Abraham down. Abraham probably felt the futility of all the time and energy that he had spent raising Ishmael to this point. Abraham was probably also frustrated by the fact that Sarah and her demand was actually a breach of justice in the ancient Near East. The son of a slave still had legal claim on his father's uh, property. By demanding that Hagar and Ishmael be cast out of the house, Sarah was bringing even more injustice to the situation. And so Abraham, again, feeling pressure from both sides of this conflict, Sarah on one side reconciling her guilt and anxiety, Ishmael and Hagar on the other side, bearing the brunt of all the ways that Abraham's more failings had come to a point. So what's Abraham's reaction to Sarah's demand? He's brokenhearted. He's angry. Abraham feels this way on the account of his son. He recognizes the injustice of the situation. And he fears for the well-being of Ishmael, understandably. We can relate. To Abraham's reaction to all of this, just like we can relate to Sarah's reaction to all of this, can't we? We see injustices carried out every day. We we see things happening in the world that trouble us to our very core. And closer to home, we see the impact that our sin has on those closest to us. We know what it's like to be in Abraham's shoes, too. We witness the devastating consequences of sin in the lives of other people, and we lament with Abraham. We mourn over the brokenness as well as as any part that we had to play in the situation. What should Abraham's response be to these circumstances that trouble him so much? What should our response be when we see some of the injustice and brokenness that gives us so much heartache? Abraham obviously bore some responsibility for the situation. Sarah bore some responsibility for the situation. And even Hagar and Ishmael bore some responsibility. But in this moment of deep distress, God provides reassurance that he will work through the messy situation and provide for the good of everyone involved. He tells Abraham to follow Sarah's demands. Abraham now has an opportunity to trust God to work in the situation. But he must have been really tempted to try to take the situation into his own hands. He already has a track record for doing that, trying to manipulate a situation to work out the ends that he he thinks is best. And now God is telling him that he should listen to Sarah. Abraham's probably getting ready to bail at this point on all of the instructions that God is giving him. I know I would be. Things did not go well the last time that he listened to Sarah's advice. So in a world of brokenness and sin and confusion, we are regularly invited like Abraham to trust God is able to work for the good of the very situation that causes us the most outrage and grief and heartache. When situations arise that cause us to fear for the well-being of others, we have an opportunity to trust. 
When we bear the burden for the ways that our failings have broken relationships, we have an opportunity to trust. When conflict arises in our lives and we want to take matters into our own hands, we have an opportunity to trust. God can redeem, as we'll see in the next um, section, God can redeem even the darkest situations and provide for us in ways that we never would have expected. And so as we move into the final scene of this story, we're going to see that God can provide things even amongst the greatest consequences of, of human sin. God shows care for Hagar and Ishmael, even amongst the consequences that Abraham had brought about. God is merciful to to Hagar and Ishmael, even though the relationship between them and Abraham's household is is irreparably broken. In Galatians, the, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that Christians are spiritual descendants of Isaac, and that should resonate with us. Paul also uses Hagar and Ishmael to, to illustrate um, people who try to relate to God through the keeping of the law. But in spite of that ultimate spiritual reality, that ultimate, ultimate picture um, that God uses um, from the story of Hagar and Ishmael at this point, God still takes care of them according to his promises to Abraham. And so the big question that I want us to keep in mind as we see God provide here is, is your understanding of grace big enough? Is my understanding of grace big enough? Are we able to trust God and that he will work in the consequences of our brokenness to our ultimate benefit? God could have very easily told Abraham to suck it up. God could have been cold and uncaring when it came to the outcome for Hagar and Ishmael. I mean, what reason would God have for providing for them because of Abraham's past failings? And the answer, I think, lies in, what, in a truth that we so often forget. God's grace is more than just about forgiving us so that we punch our ticket to heaven. God's grace is big enough to work for our good, even in the midst of things where we feel the most guilt and the most regret. God's grace is big enough to work for the good of others who we feel are being uh, treated unjustly. God's grace is big enough to help you trust his goodness when you're personally sinned against. Abraham had done nothing to deserve the, the favor from God at this point. Even in, the, even in the case of Abraham's greatest moral failings, God gave him the assurance that he was still in control. Abraham's sin with Hagar was great. He tried to take control of his own destiny. He let his doubts overcome his trust, and Ishmael was born as a result of all of that. But God's grace for Abraham was greater than all his sin and the consequences. So when the story focuses on this mother and son, these castaways heading out into the wilderness, we get this desperate picture of their, their being alone, defenseless, and without resources. So we might even ask ourselves, what's the point of even carrying on this story? Isaac is clearly the son that God provided, and it would make perfect sense just to end the story and uh, give us a, let it go to our imagination what happens with Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness. But, as I was reading over the story, I realized I'm really glad that the story didn't end there. And I hope you will be too by the end of this. The reason I'm glad that the rest of the story is, is there for Hagar and Ishmael, because it shows us, again, just how far God goes to be faithful to his promises to Abraham. We might expect, like I said, God to be 
indifferent to the hardships that were brought upon Hagar and Ishmael, but he's not. We might expect him to turn his attention away from them once they're out of Abraham's house, but he doesn't. When the water in the skin runs out, Hagar puts Ishmael under a tree, and their situation looks like it's the utmost in despair. She's trying to prepare herself for the imminent death of her only son, this only son we know of from this story. What a devastating moment for her. She's, she's had her faults, of course, for her interactions with Abraham and Sarah over the course of our stories. Hagar was not completely innocent in all of this, of course, but she was completely powerless at this point. Her circumstances were completely out of her control because of Sarah's outrage and an outburst as a result of what she saw. So, in her last moments of despair and hopelessness, Hagar's final cry is that she would at least not have to witness the death of her son. But instead, God intervenes. He's completely familiar with the circumstances and the complications and the distress that are part of our broken world. And we see that in his response to Hagar. It's exactly in that situation that seems the most hopeless for them that God enters in and asks that probing question. What's troubling you? God again proves himself to be trustworthy in this situation. First, he proves that he's attentive to Hagar's despair. He offers her comfort in the face of her fears. But not only is is he attentive to Hagar's cries, he's also provided a way to rescue her and Ishmael from the situation. God could have simply stopped with his words to Hagar about making Ishmael a great nation. But God in his mercy not only makes promises to his people, but he also takes the necessary steps to provide that those promises will take place. What he, he, what he says, he takes the necessary steps to ensure will happen. And so in the case of Hagar and Ishmael, God follows up the promise to Abraham uh, that, Hagar, that Ishmael will be a great nation with the provision of a well in the middle of the wilderness. What looked like the tragic end to a tragic story starting all the way back in Genesis 16 God came in to this moment to ensure that his word to Abraham would be carried out. He told Abraham to trust his promises. Then he told Hagar to trust his promises. Then he provided exactly what was needed for Hagar and Ishmael in their moment of despair. When human efforts and resources fail, which they always will, God promised, when those fail, God's promises are backed by his provision. He told Abraham not to be distressed about the outcome for Hagar and Ishmael. God's grace was big enough to work for the good in spite of how bad the situation had become. How much more does this grace abound for God's family then? For those of us who can claim the the covenants of grace, those promises abound even more. God hasn't promised just to forgive us of our sins of the past. He's promised to work all things to the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. That includes those dark parts of our past where we feel regret and shame. God's provision for our guilt and shame is full and complete in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross is also definitive proof that God can work 
the greatest good from the greatest injustice. A perfectly righteous man died for the sins of the world. If our faith is in Christ, if your faith is in Christ this morning, who are we, who am I, who are you to bear any more the guilt of our, of our own guilt or to hold the guilt of someone else over, over their heads? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I'd like to close this morning with a few points of application for us from this story, from the lives of Abraham and Sarah. The first is a warning, the warning that we can take from Sarah's reaction to Ishmael and Hagar. Guilt and regret of the past can rob us of our joy, the joy that's found in God's present gifts and faithfulness. Letting ourselves be haunted by our past or hoarding, holding the past of others against them can make us, make us anxious, bitter, and begin to treat others unjustly. It can begin to make us treat ourselves unjustly. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as godly remorse or that when others have deeply sinned against us that we should just let bygones be bygones. What I am saying is that there is a fine line between sorrow, godly sorrow, and taking the justice of God into our own hands when he has declared us righteous because of what Christ has done for us. So pray for wisdom, charity, and compassion when anxiety takes over, anxiety over the past takes over like it did in Sarah's circumstances. Things usually get worse, not better, when we try to take God's judgment into our own hands. The second thing that we can take with us from this story is Abraham's willingness to trust. Abraham was caught in the middle of a no-win situation. He was surrounded on all sides by people whom he loved, but people who had been hurt by his past history of moral failures. For a man who has a track record of trying to take matters into his own hands, Abraham does something profound here. It's a big change. He trusts and he rests in, prom in God's promises to work in the situation. Because of God's word to him, Abraham recognized that God wasn't out to get him for the ways that he had messed up. The same is true for us. God is not out to get us for our past. We are simply called to trust in his plan for us. Sometimes we, like Abraham, will have to deal faithfully with the very real consequences of our sins of our past. But the consequences, let me say this, the consequences of our past don't represent God's disple displeasure with us. When God looks at us, he sees Christ, the son in whom he's well pleased. So how could our conse the consequences of our sin represent God's displeasure with us? And so finally, God provided that his grace proved, excuse me, God proved that his grace was big enough to provide for Hagar and Ishmael. God promised Abraham that they would be okay, and he made sure that, he, that they were. The moment when it looked like all hope was lost, he made provision for them in the wilderness. Do we allow God's grace to be that big in our lives? Or do we let guilt and regret shortchange the redemption that Jesus provided for us on the cross? Do you allow grace to be that big in the lives of others? Or do you try to put your, yourself in the place of God and still hold people's guilt over their heads? If God is able to work for the good of Hagar and Ishmael, how much more is he able to work for your good? It may take months, it may take years, it may take decades, 
to heal that brokenness. But when we look at the, the parts of our past that haunt us most, this story reminds us that God can take those moments by his grace and use them for his glory. Will you pray with me? We, Father, we thank you for the very real pictures that we see of your people struggling to work through the consequences of the brokenness of sin as they try to deal faithfully. Um, they often fall short, and we thank you for the uh, reality that you show us that um, these people aren't moral or heroes. They're uh, people to look at and draw, um, draw pictures and arrows to the way that you work graciously in our lives. And we thank you for the ultimate accomplishment of grace for us in Christ, that he has accomplished our righteousness and that you see us as righteous because of him. Help us to trust you. Help us to apply these truths to our lives and to our relationships. And we thank you for how you're working in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.